Hi guys, thanks so much for watching Speaking of Founders Mission. I'm Stephanie and today I have Jacqueline Wainwright who is the CEO of Aircare Health. So thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. So tell me, what is Aircare Health? We are a company who is committed to helping individuals, families, and communities put emotional health first. When we talked before, you said that you really act as a connector to help people find the resources that they need. So how do you find the people who need help? You, re you work with employers. Yes, so yes, we are a connector. And, and really what led us to this space or, or to being a connector is the fact that so many individuals that suffer from behavioral health conditions or anxiety, mental health problems, they never ever get the help that they need. And, and that's mostly due to the fact that they either don't know how to ask for help, don't know they're struggling from something that is you know, considered to be a diagnosis that can be treated. And also they just, you know, the system isn't set up in a way that allows people to get help effectively for emotional health problems. And so, you know, we, we decided that if we were gonna really overcome a barrier and overcome obstacles and help people get the care and the treatment that they need, we needed to go to them. So we needed to find a way to take out the traditional barriers or obstacles to care and overcome all of those things in a way that wasn't completely overwhelming and big brother-like. And so uh, we do, we partner with employers and health plans and we use data to find people uh, and hopefully find them at a point in time when they may be experiencing some underlying condition or going through a tough time and we're able to reach out, offer them support, and instead of you know, going on a long period without getting the support they need, they're able to be connected to care right away, we can build a relationship and help them overcome those problems. What is it like talking to people whenever you first identify them or if you find out that maybe they're going through a, a difficult time in their life or you know, maybe they're diagnosed with a disease? What is it like to be able to talk to them and hear, let them share their concerns and then talk through some solutions? You know, it's, it's kind of like having a conversation with a good friend in a lot of ways. Um, you know, we put this, I don't know, care, this formality around care. And, and I'm not really sure why we do that or, or what context requires us to, to act that way. But at the end of the day, we're both human beings, right? Uh, and, and one of the human beings on, on the phone or on the video is struggling. And so we try and show up as a friend. We try and show up and connect with people in, in a real way and listen and then either listen some more or, or offer them some, some support, some advice, some guidance. Um, so it's really not traditional in the sense that we're, we're creating a formal environment and you make an appointment. And we've tried to take everything about the care that is traditionally received and make it easy, accessible, human. Uh, so it's a lot like talking to, you know, maybe someone you've known a long time or, or a friend to some degree. I love easy, accessible, and human because those are, especially when you think of mental health, those are the things that are probably the most challenging because, you know, if you're 
struggling with things, if there's too much in your head, whether it's a condition like bipolar disorder or depression, or if you're dealing with something like a new diagnosis, there's just so much happening that you can't focus. So having it easy is such a big deal and then accessible and then human because you just want somebody to hear you. The types of things that I think we as human beings struggle with on a daily basis are life things, right? They're everyday life things. And so Yes, we, we show up and we help people figure out how to overcome complicated diagnoses or maybe understand how trauma earlier in life may have, you know, followed them into adulthood and, and caused problems that um, are debilitating today. But, you know, at the end of the day, everybody just needs someone that they can count on uh, to give them an objective point of view, to listen to what they're struggling with and help to solve problems. And ultimately, that is the goal for all of the contact that we have with individuals. What can we do to make life a little easier? How can we help to overcome obstacles that maybe nobody's offered to help overcome before in an effort to build a real relationship so that when they have a problem, they come to us and they say, hey, I'm, I'm struggling. I, you know, I need help. The people that work at your company, are they counselors or therapists? Who are, who are the people talking to when they call? Yeah. It's a great question. We, so we're primarily um, made up of full-time uh, master's level clinicians. So that, uh, and we have a very multidisciplinary uh, team. So they, uh, we employ licensed clinical social workers. We um, uh, licensed marriage and family therapists, uh, therapists, counselors, I'm trying to think, uh, eating disorder specialists, drug and alcohol counselors. We have uh, master's level educators. We have people that specialize in, in the special education system. Uh, we have, I'm trying to think, people that have an MBA and, and know how to you know, get a budget together and make decisions about uh, financial related matters. Um, so, you know, it takes, like most problems that are complicated, a community of people working together to solve them. And so we really tried to build a community of people that could rely on one another to help solve problems for others. That multifaceted approach and such a highly skilled team seems like it's such a great environment to be able to help these people because I'm, it seems like every time I've talked to you that it, your team is very collaborative and everybody just has the best interest of your, the relationships that you're building with these people to help. It has to be so reassuring for these people to know that no matter what pops up, there's somebody on your team who can help or step in. Yeah, you know, I think I have a distorted view of, of what care looks like because of how I grew up. And, and, you know, I grew up in a family where, you know, both parents were doctors and everybody in the family um, was always sort of paying attention to what was going on with the other person in the family. And, and when there was a problem, we all had to come together and figure out a way to solve it, almost to an extent where um, when I first got married and my husband came home, uh, for Christmas, he's like, why do you guys all have to sit in the same room all the time? Like, you know, everybody looks when someone get up, you know, gets up to leave. And so I think this idea of this collaborative and community of people caring for each other, uh, I love because of the way I was raised. And then I also realized that I think as human beings, we, we need that. We, we crave support and contact and, and we like to learn. And, and I know people don't go into a clinical field, you know, to be isolated. People want to help other people. And so 
if they can do that and they can do it with a team of people who are motivated by the same things, it really creates a, uh, a, a company, a culture that is committed to caring for others together. Do you feel like the need for this or the demand has been much stronger since the pandemic began and people have been so isolated themselves? Absolutely. I think we have seen a huge spike or increase in the number of people that, A, pick up the phone. Uh, the number of people that are willing to just lay everything down, you know, and, and spill it on the first phone call. Uh, I think, you know, COVID will change, not only has it changed the way we practice medicine and care for each other already, uh, I actually think it's going to improve the way that we care for one another moving forward. Uh, because we're, we're learning how to be vulnerable again. I think as a community, as a society, we're forced to. Uh, you can only go on for so long um, in this hyper you know, state of awareness and, and attention to, to you know, germs and you know, change for so long. It's almost like we've all been traumatized, right? We all have a little bit of trauma now. And, and that um, period of time after the incident, and some of us I think are still going through it and we'll go through it for, for much longer, you crave contact, you, you need human contact and you need people to go through that um, with and to talk about what it was like to go through that. And I, so more than ever before, I think we crave community and we, and we crave, even if we can't have physical closeness, we, we crave emotional closeness with others for sure. It's really awesome that you said that people are willing to spill it on the first call now, because it seems like things are probably just so much more productive, but it's interesting to hear how COVID has had positive effects. But I think you're totally right, because people have just, it's like any, any chance you get, you know, I feel like the mailman comes and you're like, no, 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 don't go. Don't go you yet, got to talk. Have you seen this? Do you know that this is on sale at the store? Like, it's just, I feel like people take advantage of any opportunity to connect with someone now. And so it sounds like it really gives your team an even greater chance to make an impact in their lives in a time of need. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, I think it has some, uh, I think we're sort of starting to overcome some of that stigma because we're realizing that it's maybe not an individual problem that we're experiencing, but we have heard and we can see that it's, it's a community problem, that I'm not the only one. I mean, I think one of the greatest obstacles to asking for help is, is shame and fear. And, you know, that makes me so sad because it's, it's, to me, such an easy thing to overcome as a community if we can just turn that around and say, shame for what? Do you feel ashamed when you break your leg? Do you feel ashamed when, you know, you get cancer? I mean, come on. We have got to change that message. And so I think the, the fact that we can look around and talk openly and say, I, I can see that you're also not having a great day. This is tough on you too. Okay, it's not just me, right? It's not, it's not a me problem maybe anymore. And so that makes it a little bit more acceptable uh, for people to ask for help. Why do you think people are so nervous to seek help for things? To me, it's the difference between having a chronic condition like diabetes or um, anything like that, high blood pressure, and then going to the gym. Like they're both caring for your health, but it's just in different ways. And so to me, talking to a counselor or a therapist is kind of the equivalent of going to the gym 
you know, I, why don't people see it in that way, kind of just a tune-up or a keep you going? Yeah, so I think there's a, a couple of reasons. There, there's some there's some science to explain uh, some of the maybe chemist brain and, and chemical reasons why we're not able to ask for help. So for, for the majority of behavioral health conditions, um, the symptoms of that condition oftentimes are care avoidance, um, their shame, they're the inability to follow through with treatment plans, uh, a lack of interest. And so these types of symptoms make something that's already difficult for people to do even more difficult. I think that's one element. I think others are, are related to education and the, the lack of education from a young age that we provide to our, our children about emotional health. Uh, it's like anything else. You've got to take care of it, right? You have to you have to invest the time, you have to understand how to do it, and then you have to practice. And then there's things like regular obstacles to care, cost, access, uh, on top of all of those. So I think the deck is stacked against people in that way. And, and we just decided we're gonna turn it around. We're not gonna take that as an obstacle that uh, can't be overcome. We're gonna go out and find people and we're going to predict and prevent instead of chase and treat. Where did your passion for this come from? Because you said you grew up in a family of doctors, but now you're in a whole different field of health tech. You know, I think it's hard to sometimes understand why you are the way you are um, when you look at it, you know, from, from your point of view. But what I can tell you is that I grew up with a very different idea of care. I was, um, my, my parents, both, both physicians, um, are two of the most um, selfless people uh, that, that I've ever known. And so not knowing a lot of people when you're growing up, except for your parents as role models, I just thought that's what care was. I thought healthcare was these gladiators, these people that showed up, these warriors that protected you. Um, they fought for you. They you know, put you before all other things. And, and so I think I associate my parents with what care should be like. And then I grew up, right? And I go out into the real world and I got a very different look at what healthcare is uh, and experienced it for myself in a way that was so drastically different than, than what I had thought it should be. I wanted to change the world from a young age and I finally had an opportunity uh, to, to do something I thought would be meaningful. Uh, and I actually was going to go and pursue a future in medicine, go to medical school, and I had the opportunity to take an internship at this company. Uh, and the worst shift at the worst, you know, nights and weekends, but I was willing to do it. And uh, oh, I just fell in love with the mission. I fell in love with the, I fell in love with the conversation, honestly. Um, the, I got to pick up the phone and listen to people pour their hearts out. Uh, and tell me these just terrible stories of just trying to get help over and over again and nobody listening or nobody caring enough to put the pieces together for them. And I got to say, it's going to be okay. Uh, we're going to help you. Uh, you found finally a company that is willing to put the pieces together. We're going to do it and you're going to be okay. And, and just to be able to, to give that message of hope uh, to people that were so desperate for answers and, and so desperate for a solution, 
I mean, it's almost like you get addicted to that feeling. You get addicted to miracles and in a way that I can't explain and I never look back. That has to be amazing to be able to help them. I love that you started as an intern and now you're leading this company because it's not like, you know, you took this job because it was great paying or because you moved up, you know, you wanted to take the next step in your career. You started because of the mission and you stuck with it because of the mission and you've built your way to where you are now because you have such extreme passion for what you're doing. And, and I fell in love with the man who founded the company and <laughs> uh, we're still happily married today. So it's a little bit of a, you know, I think when you find your purpose in life, it hits you in the face and you just can't ever look back. And for me, that couldn't be more true in every sense of the word. You just, you know, I'm, I'm, I breathe it. I wake up and live it and breathe it every day. It's, it's just part of who I am. And, you know, that's probably part of the reason that, um, you know, my husband and I found one another and are happily married and continue on this path to try and improve emotional health for the people that we, we serve. How do you two manage that? Because you're a mom, you're a wife, he is a dad and a husband. How do you manage dealing with pretty weighty issues for people at work all day and then supporting your own team and then going home and having a family. How do you put that out of your head and how do you give them everything that they need? Um, that's a complicated question. I think nobody can do all of those things well. Uh, but you know, a while back when, when we made the decision that I would step into the CEO role, uh, which you know, was a decision we made now almost five years ago, uh, he uh, showed up in a way and has continued to show up in a way for, for our family that is just so courageous and honorable. Uh, we sort of said, you know, there's too much work for all of us to do all of it, right? So he said, I, I think I laid a good foundation. You clearly have the skills to take this company to the next level. I'm going to support you and, and I'm going to do whatever I need to make sure that I'm taking care of the family. And so he has done that um, endlessly, just showed up and done whatever was needed. Um, I mean, he plays a huge role in the organization. Don't get me wrong. He's, you know, the founder and he has a vision and um, a way of, of moving a room that, that I just don't have. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, you divide and conquer like every family does, right? You do what you can. And on some days I can do most of those, of those things well. And on other days, I can do nothing well. And so I think as a mom, uh, you, you show up as much as you can, as best as you can for your kids. As a CEO, I show up as best as I can uh, for, for my team and support them, love them. And then I go home and I hope that it's enough. You mentioned before that one of the barriers to mental health really is just the acceptance of it as something that should be an area of focus. How do you put that into your kids now and ensure that it's something that they know is okay and should be encouraged? I think, you know, luckily my husband and I share a lot of the same values and approaches to life, health, um, emotional well-being. And so we get to practice those things in front of the children, hopefully every day. Uh, not great, you know, not perfectly because kids you know, you can tell them whatever you want. Kids are, are watching, right? Kids get their cues from what you're doing and, and saying, but mostly what you're doing. And so 
you know, it's, it's been challenging to, to, I guess, realize that you not only have to understand what's necessary to be, you know, emotionally healthy, but you also have to do the things that are necessary to be emotionally healthy. So I'm, I'm sure we, you know, every day make lots of mistakes, but I think the most important things that we do is, is when our kids are feeling a certain way, we stop and we acknowledge what they're feeling. Uh, so many times as parents, I think we try and say, oh, you're okay, or what, what do you mean? Or don't cry, or you know, all these things that are wrong uh, when someone's having an emotional response to a situation. And so you know, I, I, we try and recognize and validate that and say, I, I am really sorry that you're feeling sad. It's okay to feel sad. We all feel sad sometimes. Talk to me about why you're feeling sad. So just giving them a safe place, I think, to feel mm -hmm. and in understanding that that's okay is a really important step, I think, to, to learning how to take care of yourself emotionally. I have one kid and I, she has so much energy. And it's funny because, you know, she's just, she's very much like me, but she's also very different than I am. And so you, you don't always know what to say or how to, you know, she has different feelings and different everything than you. So it's funny trying to figure out like, oh my gosh, how do I handle this situation? Yeah. And, and I think my kids teach me things every day. For example, one of the most recent, uh, I, like the coolest things that I've been able to watch unfold uh, in, in our household, at least, is this idea that our, our school is teaching gender identity and all of these concepts that were not concepts when I was going through school. Uh, and so you know, my daughter will come home, Scout is her name, and she will come home and, you know, mom, uh, you know, you shouldn't tell Augie that he can't wear dresses. You are suppressing his right to express who he is. <laughs> like, absolutely, please, I'm, I'm terribly sorry that, you know, I've been uh, be controlling in a way that I wasn't aware in mm. telling him how to be him. And so, you know, she's, she's, she's big on, she'll come home and she, she draws all the flags. She knows all of the flags. I mean, there's so many, I had no idea like that, that, that I, I'm just so glad and grateful that our school is taking the time to teach kids about what it means to, to have an identity and that it's going to be different for everybody and that that's okay. And all we need to do as a community is embrace whatever it is their identity is right. Just say, cool that's awesome. That doesn't change how I love you or how I show up for you. And so that has been just such a wild experience for me to be able to go through as a mom. And I think, you know, we're lucky to see kids openly experiencing those things and being proud to do it. I just, I'm just excited about the world that she's growing up in. Doing what you do, do you see hope for the future of mental health? I, I mean, first of all, what you need to know about me, I, I am an, the eternal optimist. I, uh, yes, of course, I see hope in every area of our life, uh, but I have great hope for the future of mental health. I think there are so many awesome organizations that are calling attention to this super important topic. Uh, I think healthcare in general is, is, is ready for some change. And I think there are so many awesome companies and, and individuals that are sick of the status quo. And, you know, that's all it takes, right? 
get get involved get be a part of your local revolution uh if you don't like the way care is today do something about it uh because that's what it's going to take all of us saying i don't want to be treated that way or that's not how care should feel uh that doesn't work for me and pretty soon i think it will have to change what are the the developments that you've seen that excite you about the future of mental health are there certain milestones or certain things or awarenesses or inventions services that have really excited you other than your own company because obviously you're doing amazing things oh well i mean i think i i'm a i'm a geek i love the technology i like the technology from a standpoint of how can the technology make it possible for more human to human interaction so i'm a big fan of taking the tech and and putting it behind the scenes and leveraging it all the ways um, that we possibly can so that my clinical team or you know my uh, physician's clinical team or whoever can just spend all the time in their day focused on the person in front of them not focused on all the other stuff and so for me all the tech that's doing that, some of the like natural language processing tools and the virtue, the way that they're le leveraging some of the like virtual reality and um, augmented reality stuff to pick up on pain or um, facial cues in a way that, I mean, you can't even imagine uh, possible and leveraging that to give us more information that's objective so that as a clinical team, we can help the patient or the individual in front of us to understand things in a way that they can overcome and, and move forward. So taking that objective data and, and using it to help build the connection between the patient and the, and the caregiver. That's really cool. I love how you said to detect pain and the facial movements. Yeah, so some of the augmented reality, the virtual reality stuff and, you know, pain is personal, right? Pain is personal. It just is. It's not, I, I get that there's a pain scale, but that pain scale, first of all, you know, before I had kids, it was a very different pain scale than, than when I went into labor and then had kids. You know, I thought I had been at a 10 before and there was just that had not happened. So I think, you know, like everything in life, it's, it's all a matter of perspective. And so for us as, you know, a medical community to, to try and make pain a measure that, you know, is reliable across the board, it's just not. Um, just like everything else, it's individual. It's specific to that person in that moment on that day. And so if we have people struggling with chronic pain, how can we help them to recognize how they feel and tie it to some markers that they can see? So instead of making it, you know, this elusive and, and totally terrifying thing, um, how can we help them to, I guess, conceptualize uh, what that feels like if they were outside the body. So sort of saying, this is, this is your face when you're in, in a ton of pain. Do you see the, the characteristics? Do you see, you know, you clench your teeth and you look differently? That's a 10. Um, so just trying to tie mentally the visual cue with the internal, because, you know, don't leave people alone with themselves for too long and, and everything gets all sort of mixed up inside. You don't have a marker. You don't have a way to say, oh, I'm making progress or all you have is just this unrelenting pain that won't, that won't stop. Emotional challenges are also subjective. You can't just look at somebody and tell, you know, somebody having a parent die for some might be able to move on relatively easily. And for others, it may be an incredible challenge. And 
it might even be different for the same person at a different time, you know? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I lost my dad 10 days after my dad, my daughter got out of the NICU and it was horrible. I was very close to my dad. I loved him very much, but I, because I had a NICU baby who was on a machine, you know, on a monitor at home and receiving medications, I didn't have time to think about that. You know, if he would have died at a peaceful time in my life, I might've had more time to really to grieve. Yeah. You know, and I, I just didn't. So I, it wasn't, you know, I don't know, people might've thought that I was, you know, just like, oh, well, Stephanie handled that pretty well. <laughs> but it was just, you know, there was so much in your life. I mean, come on, you, you had a child in, in the NICU. She needed you, right? What are you, what are you supposed to do? So I think we, we often are hypercritical of ourselves, which means we're not able to look at all the ways in which we are such strong, resilient, and amazing creatures. Uh, and I think we need to do that a little bit more. Stop and say, wow, I cannot believe I survived that. Like, you know, <laughs> I can't believe that I got up every morning and showed up in a way that I could be proud of after just losing my father, right? I mean, so... I think we focus on the wrong things in a, in a lot of ways. And, and a lot of times we just need a little encouragement and a little high five or a hug to say, you're doing the right thing. It's going to be okay. Keep going. Uh, and, and when you fall down again, call me and we'll talk about it. And maybe it has to do with the fact that you didn't process the grief from your father, but maybe not. Let's, you know, let's figure it out together. I love that. You are doing amazing things. Your team has to be just as incredible. They're motivated by you every day. And thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Thank you. And thank you guys for watching. Bye.